Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. Everything EcoStore makes is plant and mineral based. They create and test each of their home, body and baby care formulations against international safety standards. And all of their products meet the highest quality and environmental standards. So you can be sure they're safer for you, your family and our world. Look for EcoStore products in supermarkets and at all good independent retailers. Hey listeners, welcome to the Dumbo Feather podcast. Our episode today is a conversation that Barry had in August 2021 with philosopher writer and critical thinker, Dr. Tim Dean. Tim's latest book is titled How We Became Human and Why We Need to Change. And this chat spans some of those big ideas and questions. It's juicy and fun, and you're going to want to have a notepad and pen handy to capture some of the gold. Tim, tell us, this is a crazy time in the world to be launching a book, as you said, but it is the book to be launching right now. Can you give us all a quick synopsis of the thesis of the book? So the book, for those of you who are not familiar with the premise of the book, I'll give you a really quick summary of it. So the basic idea is what makes us human fundamentally? And there are so many interesting things about what makes us human and separates us from other animals. What, in my opinion, is the single thing that sets us apart is the fact that we are moral We are fundamentally moral creatures. And this stems from the fact that we are fundamentally social creatures. So we went from being four or five million years ago, our last common ancestor with chimpanzees looked a lot like chimpanzees do today. So semi-antisocial, semi-social species, not known for its table manners or its politeness or its magnanimity towards fellow apes. And we changed into the creatures who can sit here politely, quietly, looking at a screen, listening to each other, sharing and contributing and all that kind of stuff that we're going to be doing today. Chimps, on the other hand, look a lot the same. They haven't changed much over the last few million years, and we have. Why is that so? Why are we different from chimps? It's because we went through some pivot. Our species, or at least our ancestors, went through a pivot at some point in our history to become more social. And when you become more social, you're able to cooperate and live and work together and help each other out. And that can benefit all the members of that community, but it also raises all these social problems. You get conflicts of interest, selfishness, greed, status, hierarchy, things, and all these things are built into our nature as well. But we also develop this capacity to be nice to each other. We developed our moral emotions like empathy and guilt and outrage, the desire to punish people who do wrong and to thank and feel magnanimous towards people who do the good stuff. And on top of that, we also developed the ability to create culture. And with culture came the ability to create rules. 
and norms and share them and enforce them and spread them. And that's the secret sauce that enabled these relatively antisocial apes to develop into the creatures that we are today. So the premise of my book is not just about that story of how we became moral creatures. It's about how that evolutionary process, biologically and even culturally, can be a little slow. It can lag a little bit. We know that organisms adapt to their environment. But what happens when the organism changes the environment faster than it's able to adapt? And that's exactly what we've done. So we have created a world that is so different from the world that our minds expect to see that sometimes our minds misfire. And so sometimes the very same moral inclinations, that very same sense of outrage at wrongdoing that helped our ancestors to keep the peace in small-scale societies is causing more harm than good today. So we drop that sense of outrage onto social media, and instead of keeping the peace, we create more havoc. So the basic thesis of the book is that we evolved to be these moral creatures, but many of the ways in which we evolved are now out of step with the very world that we have created. And that is contributing to so many of the social problems that we face today. And I think it's acknowledging this foundational psychological and cultural lag that is underpinning these things that can help us deal with these problems today. That's the basic thesis. Yes, I love it. So how do we adapt to this new context? Do you have the how-to in there as well? Yeah, so in the book, I go through a number of really major social problems that we're facing, from racism, from sexual inequality, religious intolerance, political divisions. And throughout the theme of this book is not just an analysis of the problem and where it's coming from, but also what we can do about it. And the first thing I think that we can do, I think we can all do this in our own time, is to forgive ourselves for being primates. We are just primates wearing pants. And that means that we have a lot of the baggage of our distant ancestors that we carry with us today. And that's not our fault. It's not our fault that we are living out of step with the world today. And I think we do. A lot of us do carry a lot of angst and a lot of guilt about the way we behave, about the thoughts and the desires that we have, about the frustrations that we have, about some of the behaviours that we are pushing our biology and our culture and our history is driving us towards these things that we know are harmful. The analogy I use is it's like our sweet tooth, like our distant ancestors evolved a sweet tooth because sweet food was full of sugar and sugar was full of energy and energy was really useful when it came to surviving and reproducing. And we inherited that sweet tooth and then we created donuts and we created sweet and fatty foods. We created hamburgers. It's no surprise that these things, these super normal stimuli, these things that are far sweeter than anything that you get in nature are going to push our sweet button so strongly that we are going to be drawn towards them, even though we know that it's harming our health. And I think we can forgive ourselves for having a sweet tooth in the same way that we can forgive ourselves for having things like uh, implicit bias, but that doesn't forgive our behavior. What we can do is then be mindful of how that's affecting us, how that's shaping our behavior. And we can work in a couple of ways. One is to try to reduce the impact that things like our sweet tooth or the equivalents have on our behavior. We can be mindful of, for example, implicit bias and how to diminish the effect of implicit bias. On the other hand, we may not ever be able to eliminate that. We may not ever be able to stop craving donuts. But what we can do is also shape our environment and influence our environment. So you don't leave a plate of chocolate chip cookies on the kitchen table. So every time you walk past, you have to use your willpower to prevent yourself from eating. Okay, but wait. Okay, but wait. Mm. Okay, I have to interrupt. Yeah. 
I'm obsessed with this idea of how we make culture in this moment, right? Because there are so many things. You're like, in some ways, take the plate of cookies off the table. But what is the table and what are the cookies? And who gets to determine whether eating them or not eating them is good or bad anymore? Mm-hmm. Like it's literally game on. Rules yeah. change. You define it in the book that there was one true morality in a way that we were all leaning towards. But arguably now our morality is being shaped by so many invisible state-sanctioned forces that I don't know if we're even aware anymore what foundational morality should look like going forward. Yeah, so many good questions. And these are all philosophical questions, which I love, right? So first of all, on the one true morality. Now, what I talk about in the book is that one of the other bits of baggage that we carry is that our minds are prone to seeing the world in these moral terms. It's not like we think that we come up with the rules of right and wrong. We feel like they're out there and we discover them and we see them. We objectify them. We project them onto the world and that makes us feel like they are a part of the world and we just discover them and they're true. I actually don't think that is true. I don't think that's how morality does work or ever has worked. So what I see is I see morality as something that humans invent. We invent these rules and different groups of people invent these rules based upon the problems that they're facing in their particular society, in their environment. If you're living in a small scale hunter-gatherer society and you've got scarce resources and everyone needs to muck in together in order to survive, you're going to have very different rules to live by than if you live in a large, diverse, multicultural, post-industrial society with abundance. So on the one thing, I think we expect there to be one true morality, but we've got to realize that it is malleable and that we can create it. As for how we adapt, fundamentally, we look at the world and we have to figure out what our problems are that we need to solve. Yeah, Barry. Well, my mind has exploded in a thousand directions (laughs) because on that premise, in a way, I can hear you saying morality is a localized construct, right? Which makes total sense, like a mountain tribe in the Andes or the Himalayas is going to have a different morality to Melbourne. And Melbourne's morality is currently being pressure cooked into it's rational for us to have the lockdown, but is it moral, right? Rational versus cultural, emotional, etc. So the rules change. So in that premise, the Taliban might be the right moral code for Afghanistan. And we've overlooked it because of our own biases around democracy and pluralism and liberalism. So how do we look at these things, right? Who makes the call? How do we make that call? So these are very sensible and reasonable questions that are posed whenever any philosopher sticks their neck out and suggests (laughs) that morality is not objective or real. So I subscribe to a form of moral relativism. But I say it's a form of moral relativism because it is possibly one of the most maligned and misunderstood terms in philosophy. So the moral relativism I'm talking about is not the kind that says it's relative to just whatever my culture happens to believe is right. It's not relative to what I happen to think is right, like a subjectivist moral relativism. It's relative to the environment that we live in and the kinds of problems that we have to solve. But there is a common goal that just about all moral systems have which is to help people solve the problems that they are facing that stop people from living a good life, stop people from being able to flourish. So on that, there are maybe many different ways that you can construct a moral system to help people to flourish, but there are also many that really fail badly. And I would suggest 
that moral systems, for example, that would keep women in the home and preventing them from going outside fail. They fail that test, no matter where they are in the world, no matter whether you're in a tribal culture in a resource-starved area or whether you're in an abundant society here. Now, there are interesting cultural evolutionary stories as to why those norms evolved why they emerged during agricultural times, particularly when men were able to capture more power, concentrate resources, and really, in a quite brute way, use women as a reproductive resource, which is precisely as perverse as it sounds. But that is a legacy that we also have that baggage of that history that we need to deal with today. So I use the term moral corruption, which is a case where a group of people, perhaps usually a minority, shape the moral rules in their community to benefit them at other people's expense. And that is separate from a relativistic argument. That's just to say that there are a lot of bad ways to build a moral system, but that still leaves an enormous amount of room to build healthy moral systems. Two words I'm focusing on a lot at the moment when thinking about making new systems, because clearly everything you're talking about, as my brain goes bananas, clearly we're reimagining capitalism. All the isms have come to the end of their road, one would argue. Many isms, none of them were holistic enough as a catchment and they didn't travel over the arc of time very well. So the words that I'm focusing on are healthy and whole. Mm-hmm. I, I think a really good frame is what is healthy and what is whole and just investigating those for a little bit. Yeah, and so look, I think health is a really good analogy for what I'm talking about. So using that example I was talking about before about we have a sweet tooth and that once contributed to our health because it gave us the energy that we needed to survive. Create an obesogenic environment filled with sweet and fatty foods and the same thing that was prompting health is now working against health. But what is health? Health is informed by our biology. It's informed by our culture as well and the environment that we live in. Good health is also defined by the kinds of things that we want to do. But health is not necessarily an objective fact about the world. It is something that we decide what we want to achieve. We decide what a good life looks like, and then health is something that contributes to that. But that still means that there's a lot of ways to be healthy and even more ways to be unhealthy. How do we know what's healthy and what's not? To take the analogy back to morality, how do we know what's good and what's not? That is a philosophical exercise. That's an exercise where we need to think about what kind of world that we want to live in, what kind of values do we want to have? And that is, to me, in a way, one definition of wisdom is being able to understand what these things are. Once we understand those things, we can then make some really informed decisions about what kinds of moral rules we should live by to help us achieve those ends. So I would say in a modern multicultural society like the ones that we all live in, we are large, we are diverse, we have a lot of different cultures co-interacting, We have a lot of dynamism, a lot of change. We've got a lot of wealth, but a lot of wealth inequality. So we can decide what kind of a world we want to make out of this and then decide the rules that we want to have. And so whereas in a very small scale society, something like tolerance was probably less important because everyone grew up in the same culture, was all very homogeneous. Everyone had the same ethnicity, the same values. You had the same religion. It was all imposed upon you. You didn't have a lot of choice. Tolerance wasn't necessary that much. But we live in a world now where people have such diversity of interests and ideas that tolerance is an incredibly important value for us to allow people to flourish. So that's one example of where you might have the cultural baggage from a more homogenous past, say like a Victorian English culture, which was still very unilateral in terms of the religion and the beliefs and the values. And we do inherit some of that. And it's not right for this world. 
And so a lot of the intolerance that we might have, or some people have of difference, we can understand that they've inherited that from their cultural background, but it is now causing more harm than good. So it's important to challenge that intolerance. So coming back to how we do this in a healthy way, how do we actually examine our own unconscious bias, but how do we also lean into complexity and nuance? You write about in the book how tribalism is evolutionary real for us. That's part of how we've evolved and it's been part of our success to identify with sameness and get a cogency around that. You articulate our longing for unified belonging across cultures like in Melbourne and Sydney and Australia as a whole. We want to belong to one collective together that's peaceful and tolerant and all of that. But I reckon tech is making it impossible for us to find those spaces where we could do that in a healthy way. What do you think? Yeah, technology has changed things fundamentally. And I mean, we know this, right? But let me just unpack a little bit about what I think about with technology. For most of our species history, we spoke and communicated with people in very small localised communities. And that meant that we were also probably very similar to the people around us. We had the same kind of cultural background. Suddenly, over the course of decades, we can now communicate with people around the world. But that communication is not the same as a face-to-face interaction. It's not the same as having the networks of knowing who people are by reputation, having the kind of trust within a particular community. We take all of our baggage of how we expect to behave, and then we drop ourselves onto something like social media, where we have these very narrow channels of communication. We only pick up a tiny fragment of who someone is. This is one reason why everyone's so keen to signal so explicitly over social media. We want to have little icons and flags and tags and colors that represent who we are. So we're trying to get that information across, but it often fails. What often happens, let's take an example of outrage where a moral thing that used to work really well for us can fail when we drop it onto something like social media. So in small scale society, outrage, we don't think of outrage as a moral emotion, but that's exactly what it is. Because what happens is when someone does something wrong, we feel outrage. That's a motivating emotion. It gives us energy. What we do with that is then we share it. We seek allies. We spread the outrage like a contagion. We gain these allies. And in a small-scale society, those allies would come together as a coalition and intervene against the person who did the wrongdoing in the first place and try to correct that behavior. And there's a lot of very interesting anthropological literature of examples of this happening, where outrage, coalition, intervention, correction, bring that person back in. Who remembers Bean Dad? Was on Twitter and he live tweeted his daughter trying to open a can of baked beans because she was really hungry. He wouldn't open it for her. He gave her an old can opener and said, figure it out. And for him, this was a lesson, teaching her creativity, ingenuity, giving her agency. For many people on social media, it was child abuse. And it blew up into this giant thing where people were calling him out, sharing the outrage, trying to punish this guy in all these different ways. But really, most of the people who were responding, they don't know him. They don't really know the background. They don't have the mechanisms to intervene. They don't really have the mechanisms to engage with him constructively and correct his behavior if they think that it's wrong. In fact, a lot of the people who are complaining about these kinds of incidents, they're not really trying to correct the behavior. They're just getting outraged and sharing it and looking for validation from others who are similarly outraged. And it spreads and spreads and spreads, and it can get really toxic. If what we want is using outrage for strategic action to intervene to correct a problem, that is really hard using technology. In fact, social media like Twitter has all these built-in mechanisms to reward the wrong kind of behavior. 
There are all these studies that show that the more moralizing language you use, the more anger, outrage, fury, disgust language that you use on social media, the more it gets shared, the more it's rewarding you with likes and comments and shares. So you think you've done something good. The social media things say, hey, you've done well with this tweet that got all these likes. You do a more mild-mannered tweet that doesn't necessarily inflame. It doesn't go anywhere. So the social media companies themselves are designed to encourage engagement. Engagement is motivated by these moral emotions, but they don't have anywhere to go. So the engagement for them makes them money. For us, it often just makes us miserable. Now, there are examples where social media outrage can be very powerful. I think the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter are examples of that, but they're a little bit different because they're not necessarily calling an individual out to get them cancelled. They are sharing an experience. And we are able to understand someone else's life in a way that we wouldn't be able to without that kind of a message. Yeah. But most of the outrage on social media is not like that. Yeah. couple of things. I think that's ish. You know, some of those movements, those hashtag movements start off as sharing experience, but then become a stick to beat culture with. And they are making culture. I mean, culture is being made by outrage. That seems to be what culture is now. It's outrage. And the lines are being redrawn. I don't think we have much agency unless you co-outrage with everyone. Where's the agency piece? Because I just heard you say our agency is in disengaging from the platform. Well, there's a couple of things, yeah. So one thing is you take the bowl of cookies off the table, which is you decide how you're going to engage with the platform. You unfollow the people who are just sharing outrage porn, people who are sharing it because the social media network is giving them the reward mechanism for doing so. And all you're doing is feeding that. But if you don't think it's contributing to making the world a better place the way you think it should be, then stop following them. That's one bit of the agency that we can have. Another is a more abstract form where we can lobby for regulation. And I think we should all be mindful of where regulation is failing in this thing. It's a harder thing to do. But in terms of our individual behaviours, we can also decide what we're going to share. So I've got a little heuristic that I use whenever I post on social media. Because I get pissed off as well. I see stuff that makes me angry and I want to share and I want to get validation about it. But I have this thing where I'm going to write the tweet and give myself five minutes. And when I come back, I look at it and I'm like, am I actually making the world a better place or am I just trying to validate my own feelings? Am I just being indulgent here? And I end up deleting probably half the tweets and the half that survive, I reword them and they're better anyway. But wait, there's more. Hmm. When I hear you say this, you're talking about mastery because you're talking about maturity and mastery and the platforms that are evolving are designed for, some might argue, people younger than us who are less interested in that maturity and mastery. They're just less interested because the high that they get from that social cohesion around outrage is enough. Like in Australia, most kids between 15 and 30 right now can't even leave their homes. So they can get the emotional juice out of their engagement on social media, toxic or otherwise. It's satisfying. There's that point. So we're going to have these massive intergenerational gaps in creating the moral culture of our world. What do we do about that? Because we can't even find each other intergenerationally. Yeah, it's a huge problem. This is why I think regulation is necessary. And it's a real pain in the ass to say, hey, go out there and be one small voice in a much bigger conversation to try to regulate these things. But fundamentally, in many ways, social media is built to co-opt our psychology for its benefit and not for ours. 
And there's only a limited amount that we can do to fix that. There's only a limited amount that we individually can do. And I'm not suggesting that we all become dispassionate Stoics who are able to use self-control. I actually think self-control is terrible. This is why I tell people to take the bowl of cookies off the table, not leave it there and walk past it and decide not to eat them. That's really going to fail. It's the same way with dieting in general. Self-control is really weak. The younger generations are under threat at the moment. I mean, social media has its its strengths. And I think during lockdown, the fact that people can communicate with each other in ways that they couldn't 100 years ago is really powerful. But we need to be mindful that social media is potentially just a very dangerous platform. And it is ultimately your choice whether you decide to engage with it. Because if you do engage with social media, you are more likely to see those cookies and those buttons are going to be there giving you the feedback. And that is a choice that you can make. And it's much easier to use it less frequently than it is to use it more frequently and try to then regulate your behavior within it. There's no easy answers here, but at least when you understand and forgive yourself for responding to the buttons because you're a primate, but you can still decide how you're going to engage with it. It's actually an awful description. I actually suddenly saw all of us as these primates in a science lab just pressing the buttons, like (sighs) pressing the buttons. I mean, dude, there's so much. I'm going to use two really excellent words together epistemological overwhelm Mm -hmm. our decision making capacities reduced like well (laughs) speak for myself it's been vastly reduced in lockdown and in general it's like you've got options i don't want to look and i gotta look Mm. for sanity health wholeness you're disengaging and then when you do engage it's a minefield and then yeah. you know that you're just a primate pressing buttons and getting all of that dopamine from So, so else. one of the things that I suggest is go local because we crave agency. We crave the ability to have some influence on our community. If we believe that our community exists in the ether, we're not going to have as much agency. But we've got to remember that first and foremost, we are physical creatures and we live in local communities. And a lot of the pain and the suffering and everything that triggers our outrage is stuff happening to other communities. And that same pain and suffering is probably happening in our communities as well. So I do recommend people get engaged with their local communities. And here's somewhere where social media can be useful. Create a Facebook group or join a Facebook group just for the people on your street or in your building. Communicate with them. Find out what they need. Find out what problems that they face at the moment. Buy someone shopping if they're unable to get out. Look after their pets. Look after their kids. Those kinds of things immediately start to bring us back to the kind of world that our minds do expect and we are really good at navigating, which is local community. And suddenly, we feel less disempowered. We feel less need to go onto social media to complain about things that are happening on the other side of the world that we have almost no or zero ability to change in effect. Yes, and I feel like the cultural warfare that is really on all of our newspapers and in all of our feeds is shifting language to the point that people don't even understand each other anymore. Like words have changed and the lines in the sand have shifted. So at a more meta-cultural level, who gets to decide which moral values stay and which ones go? Look, it's such a good question. A part of my view on morality is that it is a negotiation. Morality is fundamentally a negotiation. It used to be something that was given to us or imposed upon us by people in power. I talk about religion a lot. I've got a whole chapter about religion in the book. The phrase I use is that religion is humanity's greatest invention because it enabled us to transition from small-scale society to medium-scale society. It did that at cost. And the cost was it tended to be quite constraining and often quite oppressive in giving you 
a particular package of values and norms and a worldview that you had to conform to. You didn't have a lot of room to move out of that. And I think in the modern world, there are a lot of reasons why we want to reject the enforced morality view and think about it more as a negotiation. Now, fundamentally, as a part of a negotiation, you're so right that the culture is conflicted at the moment. There are all these voices and counter-narratives butting up against each other. And I'm betting that each and every one of us here has had more than one incredibly frustrating encounter and conversation and disagreement and argument with someone where you just walked away thinking, my God, how could they possibly think that? How could they possibly believe these things? And why can't they understand what I'm talking about? So I've got another whole chapter in my book about politics. The point that I make there is not about the politics of how to win an election. It's the politics of how societies are governed and the different perspectives on what a society should look like. And what I realized during a lot of my research is that people look at the world in these fundamentally different ways and they, different parts of our nature are appealing to people in different ways. I mean, I should add, when I talk about human nature, I'm not talking about one unified thing. Human nature has lots of different forces pulling and pushing in different directions and swirling around. And some people, there's a lot of variety and diversity. Some people are outgoing. Some people are shy and reserved. In the same way, some people have such a strong appeal or the idea of a small-scale homogenous community has such an appeal for some people that that's the way they see the world and that's the world that they crave. Whereas for others, they are more tolerant and open and able to be more diverse and see the world and live anywhere in the world. They connect with people over abstract values rather than things like ethnicity. There are lots of different dimensions, but these two dimensions between what the British journalist David Goodhart calls somewheres who have their identity locked in place and anywheres whose identity is based on values and could live anywhere in the world. These two identity groups just don't see the world in the same way, and they talk past each other all the time. And a lot of our political and cultural conflict, say around something like Australia Day and changing the date, comes down to the way people see their world around them, whether they're craving a small, unified, homogeneous society, or whether they're open and tolerant and able to be more diverse. Now, when it comes to debating which one of these is right, I'm not saying they're both right. In the modern world, I think the anywhere moral framework is a better framework for solving the problems that we have to deal with in a large, diverse, international, multicultural world. But anywheres can't be arrogant about that. Can I just say, actually, a lot of social studies have been done the somewheres and anywheres. I love that frame. That's really great. That's really fun. Jonathan Haidt, has that amazing book, The Righteous Mind. He talks about conservative and progressive minds in a similar way, that they are, in fact, this is really, you could not tweet this shit or you would be shut down, but the progressive and the conservative minds are complementary yes. to one another. I know heaps of progressives who'd like to eradicate conservatives. <laughs> you know, it's gotten to such a point of warfare that the thinking is that one is better than the other that one is innately broken, outdated and wrong, and one is right. I draw on a lot of John Haidt's work. I think he yeah, is he's he's awesome. really helped us understand the way we think about right and wrong and the way different people think about it in different ways. So when I talk about the difference between somewheres and anywheres, the point is there's a cost either way. So with somewheres, you have a high amount of social capital. This is another term that comes from a sociologist, uh, Robert Putnam. And social capital is the, the trust and the respect and the shared values and the bonding that we have with other people within our community. That enables, it's the lubricant that allows us to interact 
and help a community grow. But a lot of this social capital can also be quite exclusive. When you are a member of a community, a part of what makes you that member is that you have outgroups who you push away from. So the somewhere worldview flourishes in terms of having high social capital within these populations, but it can create antagonism between groups. And we see that around the world. The anywhere perspective wants to build bridging capital, build capital between groups, let these groups come together, mingle, find shared interests and common goals and allow them to be separate. But it can sometimes erode the social capitals within groups. And this is what getting a blend of these two things together is important. Now, I do think that the anywhere idea of diversity and tolerance is crucial for the world, but we cannot ignore the cost of a globalized internationalist approach. And we see this through economics and neoliberalism, this idea that that labor is purely just money and jobs overseas. No, sometimes having the baker in your neighborhood has a value that is not captured by the money. Yes, but it was sort of like all the isms. You know, we drive those roads all the way to the end and then we fall off a cliff and get a shock. I think the anywheres were trying to use capitalism and free trade to get to essential ideology. This can work writ large across humanity with 8 billion people on one living planet. Well, they didn't think about the living planet bit, but I think that a lot of these isms were created to try and solve for these collective problems with more and more of us on the planet. How do we cohere? I agree with you around religion. I feel like the Ten Commandments was genius. Think how long those Ten Commandments were able to hold communities across the tundra, you know? (laughs) How do we get to cohesion at a local level and a global level? Yes. Look, I wish I knew. I wish I could give you a, a simple and clear answer. But what I would suggest is that a lot of what we're talking about is like social identity. I do think that you cannot know who someone is without also knowing the groups that they belong to and the values that those groups hold. Agree. So that social identity, though, is so important to a lot of these disagreements and conflicts that we're having. But social identity is also very malleable and it's layered. So you can have rivalry with your neighbourhood next door during a football game, but then you can be their allies when it comes to the state finals. And then you can be allies with people who were the opponents in the state finals when it comes to the international competition. We know that there are different levels to identity and there are different things that can bring us together whilst maintaining different levels of parochialism and smaller scale kind of values and ethnicities at lower levels. I think fundamental to building and scaffolding these identities, I'm sceptical about whether we can ever have a global identity and I'm sceptical about whether we can ever have a kind of a global solidarity. There are too many forces that are pulling groups apart at different levels, but What we can have is we can scaffold higher levels of identity that can bring us together by building social capital. And this works fundamentally beginning with the local level, where we build trust and respect and engage in good faith with people in our neighbourhoods. And we can then layer that up on different levels and different levels before we get to the national or the transnational. Yes. And we have some urgent things we need to cohere around, like we're on one living planet. There's a reality to our context, which is this is it, baby. Cooperation is what makes our species what it is. That needs to happen urgently, but there's a tension in the prescriptions that I'm saying in my book, because a lot of what I'm saying is sometimes I'm saying slow down. Sometimes I'm saying don't leave people behind and don't yell at people because you haven't helped them move up to where you are. But we also are in a race. We're in a race to be able to solve some of these problems. My book is not aiming to solve every problem. 
And my book is not aiming to solve things like climate change. They are such big, complicated things. But I don't think you can solve those kind of problems without understanding our nature, our history, and our culture. So what I talk about is not the solution, but it is, I think, an essential part of a solution. What's satisfying, of course, is having this conversation. We're creating a moral container, hosting and holding conversations with biodiversity in the moral frame is good. I think we came up with one solution that's very hard to hold for a lot of people, which is curiosity, genuine curiosity. If you're pro-vax and you're talking to a friend who's an anti-vaxxer, it's not about outrage and convincing. It's more about the quality of our questions. Yes. And I love that approach because I'm a philosopher and what philosophy is all about is questions. The second most important thing in the world is a good answer. You know, a good question is, I think, better. And one of the ways I think about philosophy in terms of defining philosophy is it's an antidote to certainty. So when we really think we have a certain answer, if you engage with some philosophy around it, you really take a philosophical mindset to it, you'll pretty quickly find that there are holes, there are problems, there are inconsistencies, there are unknowns. Many of the things, if not everything, that we think we are absolutely certain about can be called into doubt. And one of the joys and frustrations of being a philosopher is you can construct a great argument, like something that's really strong, and you will know that there's at least one, probably a dozen other philosophers out there who have constructed an equally strong argument contradicting what you've said. And what that does is it promotes humility, intellectual humility. And intellectual humility is a precondition for curiosity. When you're certain, you're no longer curious. When you start to question your beliefs and challenge them and are open to reason and evidence, then you are curious. And what that means is that you're then able to share that curiosity with others, become fellow travellers to try to find answers to questions rather than come along as two people who have certainty and just butt heads against each other. And that is a reason why when you're reading my bio, that's why I'm so passionate about philosophy education each at a primary, a secondary, and at adult level. These tools, these tools to not necessarily help you win arguments, but to help you beat your own certainty into submission so that you're then able to engage more openly and in good faith with others. And that's unsettling and uncomfortable because we like certainty. Again, it's a part of our evolutionary baggage. We just want answers, right? Arguably, the mind evolved to find the first appropriate answer and then just stop asking. And it's uncomfortable to have to keep asking. But I think that's the only way for a lot of these problems. Yeah. I reckon for the somewhere people and conservative by nature people, curiosity creates anxiety. Absolutely. Because curiosity is an acknowledgement that you don't have an answer to something. Curiosity can be wonderful, but also when we talk about human diversity, and there's a lot of research on this showing that some people are naturally predisposed towards being curious, high openness on the big five personality types, and some people are less curious. There's another interesting thing in psychology called integrative complexity, which is just the tendency to look things in either black and white or shades of grey. And some people just love black and white. They just want a clear black and white answer and they're not going to probe any more than that. And others love to work within the shades of grey. So for the black and white people, though, when you present them with shades of grey, when you present them with nuance and evidence and challenging things, it's not just a cognitive issue for them, it's an emotional issue. They become very unsettled and very uncomfortable. This is why I think our psychology is the beginning point of all of this. If we can understand ourselves and others, then we can learn ways to engage in a language that others will understand so that we can do what I think is fundamental, which is moral negotiation. Do you reckon we can? I do think we can because we have. We've gotten to where we are already by doing exactly this. We just haven't called it this. And because we haven't called it this, we haven't acknowledged 
where we're good and where we're bad at it. So a lot of moral evolution has actually been populations of people negotiating and creating rules. A lot of the times there's been moral corruption and powerful groups have subverted them for their own interests. But when we name these things, we can call them out when they happen and work to create a better process to make them happen better. I mean, I'm a philosopher. That's just a philosophical answer. Yeah. The great kind of social platforms have been created. They're owned by like six people and those people are profiting from our outrage and our lack of cohesion, both and. Uh, And if I had to choose, I think that if more people just completely got off social media and spent all of that cognitive energy and mental and emotional energy, and locally doesn't necessarily mean just your street, it can mean your neighbourhood, your domain, it can mean your workplace, it can mean whatever you can connect and touch and actually affect, that's your domain, I think the world would be a better place. That was Tim Dean and Barry Liverman on the Dumbo Feather podcast. If you'd like to spend three hours with Tim exploring the philosophy of human morality, join him and the Small Giants Academy for the Future of Morality Masterclass on Tuesday, December 7. That's from 6 to 8pm Eastern Daylight Savings Time via Zoom. You can grab your tickets at smallgiants.com.au or head over to at smallgiants on Instagram. Thanks to the guys at Cheshire Audio and Yaga for editing this episode. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to our print magazine over at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. Try EcoStore's new plastic-free shampoo and conditioner bars. No plastic bottle, no soap, just concentrated, hair-loving ingredients to the bottom of the bar. Now available in supermarkets at ecostore.com forward slash au.